I'm Mark Reed Edwards, Chief Marketing Officer at HFS. Welcome to this HFS webinar, Using Low-Code to Accelerate Digital Transformation. Today, HFS research leader Joel Martin will talk with Susan Rousseau, Global Head of Digital Strategy and Emerging Business at State Street Global Markets, and Himanshu Arora, Global Sales Head, Low-Code Practice and Digital Transformation Advisor at Infosys about selecting, implementing, and sustaining a low-code strategy for your business. First, some housekeeping. We want to hear from you definitely today. We've set aside time at the end of the discussion for questions. If you'd like to submit one to Joel, Susan, and Himanshu, just click the Q&A icon at the bottom of your Zoom window. That will open a pop-up where you can type your question. Now, let me hand it over to Joel to get this discussion underway. Joel, take it away. Thank you, Mark. Welcome to my show and Susan. It's, it's great to talk again. We've, we've had several really engaging conversations on this topic, and I'm, I'm really happy to be able to share this time with both of you, as well as all the others who have joined us. We're obviously on their own digital journey and looking around how, how is low code going to be implemented? How can we better used? And what are some of the learnings, both from a partner perspective, as well as a very large enterprise user, uh, for instance, states, State Street, who's here with us today. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, we have published this as a research piece on our website. And, and I'd like to start there. I would like to cover really quickly five key findings that we found in a co-sponsored uh, research uh, program with, with Infosys, looking at low code and how it really is part of that digital journey companies are on these days. So with that, our key findings, the need for speed is a critical aspect of what people are looking for with low code. It's, it's all about how can I respond to the changing markets, customers, and needs of my business partners? What does that look like and where can we go? And this will be a big part of our conversation today. How is spending changing? You know, are people really investing in low code or is low code just something that you know, we can expect to be part of applications that we buy in the future? And then, you know, is low code really no code? You know, is it that easy to use? What do my peers think about that? What are the challenges and opportunities they've discovered? And not only deploying it within their IT organization, but across their business. And then what HFS likes to talk about, our one office mindset. How does low code fit into really breaking down silos and encouraging more decentralized development and turning ideas and feedback and opportunities to optimize processes and adopt the new ways of working into our organization? And then finally, we see low-code, it's, it's, it's not a death knell for services. It's really a driver to become more engaged with your ecosystem, with your partners, with your employees, uh, with your, your IT support teams, to create new services in a way that can really be relevant to the business. A couple of key points that I'd like to bring up, you know, on the first one, the speed component. You know, when we asked 150 decision makers, around about their low-code implementation. It was really around, we see this as a way to accelerate what we're doing, to implement new solutions, enable faster decision-making, letting business users create the tools they need to be more productive in their organization. And then very much from an IT perspective, it was a way to be part of that digital transfer, moving things to the cloud, modernizing back-end systems, developing um, containers and, and front-end systems that really drive that mobile first experience. Most of our customers really want to engage with, with, us, with us on, whether you're in insurance 
in banking, in retail. It's all becoming very mobile centric and being able to dynamically use data to adjust processes and workloads to react faster is critical to being competitive and delivering value. Uh, from an overall perspective on where is low-code spending coming from, we still see it primarily as a technology investment. This will be driven by the IT organization. This isn't something we see the business, nor do our, our respondents feel the business is seeing that's something they need to carry the budget for. But the budgets are increasing from a technology perspective. When we asked how much of your software development tools uh, budget is currently spent versus where it's expected to grow, we're seeing a, more than a threefold increase in expected low-code spending. So this is something companies see as a way forward. And it's opening up a whole new level of discussions around how do we make it applicable? How do we set up guardrails around this and use it effectively? What does this mean for our COEs? And what does it mean for governance? And we'll talk about some of those topics uh, with Amanda and Susan in a second. What's the challenge with low-code? Is it truly a no-code solution? Can you just drag and drop to create things? Well, decision makers said the biggest things holding them back aren't access to the solutions or whether they're applicable. It's really, how do we ensure that we have the right skills and training to make sure people like any other tool can use them effectively? So never go short on your training efforts. Never go short on really thinking about the kind of skills that your IT organization will need, working with its core systems, or your front-end developers will need working close with their business partners or even your business partners as they're starting to learn how it's really easy to think about the data that you're now exposing to them and the commoditized solutions that are allowing for them to really create, up, create innovative new ways of working through the challenges they're facing and the, and the solutions that they're trying to bring to market. And then low-code, it's still seen as a, a software development tool fundamentally. But for folks that agree and strongly agree, it's really a business tool that's allowing them to co-innovate with their technology teams. And co-innovation is such an important piece because it's enrolling more people across the organization to solve problems, not just depending on, I have a problem, it needs to go into a queue, it's somewhere in the backlog, it'll be in a release cycle in the spring, but I sure wish I could have had it sooner. So that co-development, co-creation, and reaching value sooner are really the drivers that most companies are looking for when they invest in loco. And then lastly, how important is it for your digital transformation journey? And really the, the, the crux of the overall report that we've written is, you know, 80% of folks strongly or definitely agree that loco will be part of their journey to the cloud, will be part of their ongoing evolution of their business, and will really leverage the new workforce that we're finding ourselves in post-pandemic. So with that, I'm going to come back to the panel and welcome Amanshu and Susan to the conversation. Hi, guys. Nice to see you again. Oh. Hey, Joe. Be here. So I'm really, you know, we've had a lot of great conversations, especially you and I, Susan, about your journey with Loco. And I thought maybe you could kind of give a quick overview of, you know, what has been the primary driver for investing or looking at low code within at State Street? Sure. Um, in global markets, we've had an underinvestment in some of the back office automation because of the need to really invest in the trading platforms and to meet critical regulatory obligations. So we had, with the opportunity to get some funding, we wanted to accelerate the value and the return on it. We also were very intent on embedding this capability in the business 
sort of just speak to your comment earlier about co-invention. We wanted to really improve innovation and really capitalize on agile practices being uh, co-located with our business partners to really drive um, uh, more innovative solutions. So low-code solutions were a great option for this because they're lower risk profile, they're lower cost, and um, that's really why we went down this journey and we wanted to accelerate the delivery to our business partners. We've delivered 20 new applications in less than 20, less than two years. So fortunately, we've had some success behind us now. And um, what we had hoped to achieve has come has come true, which is which is great. And, and honestly, that last point, when you brought that up in our first conversation, I rarely hear from a bank, you know, the ability to accelerate the delivery of solutions like 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 you hinted at there. And that's typically not the way a bank delivers solutions, given the type of QA and test and backlog and time. Uh, so that really, to me, you know, speaks to that speed that I talked about at the beginning that we heard across the market about why people are evolving this. So, so that's exciting to see. I'm just curious on those products, are they more front end? Are they allowing you really to react and innovate in the eyes of the business or your customers? Um, maybe you can just comment on that a little bit more. Yeah, um, we've developed a, an end-to-end -end client onboarding solution. So it is um, absolutely being used by our you know, client services team. Um, we've just recently launched a self-service portal, which will be used also directly by our clients. So these solutions are really mission critical solutions. They aren't just sort of replacing a, a macro, although we're certainly doing some of that as well. Um, so yes, the value, and we also on our operations side, we have some exception hubs. We have a couple of tools to automate standing settlement instructions. We have penalty claims for automation. So um, again, I think there is a misnomer that these tools are going to just replace macros or SharePoints, but we're really using them for complex business um, issues to solve for those. Right. No, that, that's that's great. Hamanchi, what about you? I mean, you come from, from a completely different perspective on this, working for an implementation partner. I mean, how are you seeing low-code evolve at, at Infosys and, and with your customers? Sure, Joel. No, I think this entire low-code journey has been a fantastic journey, both inside Infosys as well as what we have been doing for a lot of our customers. Um, initially, a couple of years back, uh, low-code was supposed to be just another marketing angle for the traditional case management workflow, right? Drag and drop model-driven conversations. That's where everybody's mind was, and this was a couple of years back, till people started to realize that the technology has really evolved. Uh, and it's no longer the traditional ways of very heavy-duty IT-centric projects. And for the first time, business and IT can really collaborate and do things in a much more faster way. That's exactly the pivot for us when we started investing very heavily in low code applications. And we invested both with along with the, our customers as well as internally into doing three fundamental things that made a change for us. One was the mindset not being uh, able to look at these low-code projects in a traditional SDLC IT fashion by itself. Uh, that was the first mindset change because we wanted to solve and the right problems, but before that, we wanted to find the right problems. And it was a mindset change by itself. So that was the first piece of the uh, fundamental, the mindset. The second one was, uh, it actually looked like a shiny toy in the hands of a kid. 
right? Uh, and everybody wanted to play with it. Everybody wanted to do different things with it, even for our internal developers, even for some of our clients out there. But you have to remember, with the need for speed, there's also a need for discipline. And that was the second pivot in our local journey. How do we get that discipline, that governance that needs to be brought in, both for our developers, uh, our analysts, as well as our clients, uh, to make this all happen in a much more responsible and sustainable way uh, by itself. So that was the second piece of the puzzle. Um, and obviously, the third piece of this entire puzzle was um, how do we work in a more collaborative fashion and bring in the culture of innovation around these low-code fundamentals along with IT, uh, rather than this being a tool in the hands of only IT or only business and, and, and uh, all the staff starting to grow. So three things uh, is, is how we have pivoted internally as well as for our clients, mindset, discipline, and the culture of innovation and collaboration. No, that's... Uh... And that's spot on with a lot of the trends that we're seeing is, is taking that new mindset about, you know, really how this opens you up to becoming responsive. It's, it's small agile in a way versus large agile because you know, agile methodologies depend on rapid application development, but they still remain sort of behind, you know, the curtain for a lot of business users. And low code, not necessarily being, you know, we're not seeing, we'll get to this question in a second, um, a huge adoption by the business, but there's a way for the business to, like I said, co-create, visualize what they want to achieve, and then work and cycle faster with, with their technology partners to create those solutions, which at the end of the day, it's what the customer's customer is always looking to drive, right? So, um, Susan, back to you, you know, how has Loco changed that mindset at, streets, uh, at State Street? Um, for well, developers and your end users, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that we are embedded in the business, so we're a little bit different. All of our data integration is done by our tech partners, but we really do, we, we are building with our business partners and many, much of my team came from the business, which also helps. So we have this nice model of real strong technical leaders, as well as very strong domain expertise for our BAs and our um, pro product managers. Um, so in terms of how it's evolving here, we started out with a smaller, portfolio of tools. Um, now we're using we're using Uncork for all of our workflow and a unified platform. We're using Duco for our recon. We're using Acceptor for unstructured data. Um, we're using Blue Prism for RPA. So we have a nice suite of tools, but I think we have a really good amount now that we can really solve a priority of our or the majority of our use cases with those tools. We're also starting to look at API accelerators. So I would just say that we've had success. So now we're expanding the use of the low code tools. And, um, and we, you know, and we, but our tech partners are crucial. They do some of our testing work as well as our data integration. It's a very strong partnership. Um, um, so that's how it's evolved. I guess the other thing, in addition to the new tools that we've added, we've also moved from focusing on the back office and middle office to some of the front office. So, uh, and also the enterprises looking at it. So um, it's, it's, that's a good sign. It's really the uptake has, has continued to increase. There's been learnings along the way, uh, like everything's not perfect. We, we are refining our governance model to Hamanchi's point, um, but, we're, um, but we've had, you know, we continue to maintain momentum and uh, deliver what we believe is valuable to the business. One thing you said at the very beginning that, that I think is very interesting is it sounds like your culture, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
was in a way set up for success for this model. It sounds like low code came up, came to you and your culture was like, this is what we've needed. Is, is that fair to say with, you know, having that deep integration in the business? Is, and is that something that you advise your peers to, to really think about when they're starting to have conversations, whether it's with their technology or with their business partner, depending who that peer might be around, you know, how they might adopt low code? Is it, there's a culture piece to it? Yeah, I think we had two things to advantage. One, there had been an underinvestment. So it wasn't as though the IT team wasn't solving problems. It was just that we didn't have the funding to do it. So there was a, um, it was a real opportunity to deliver capability that they just hadn't had. And I think that was, so we were really set up to be you know, successful if we could in fact deliver early and deliver value. We had amazing advocacy. So um, one of the leaders here at uh, State Street, Nadine Shakar, had had some success previously, and she was an amazing advocate for this. She understood the culture. She came from ops. She came from technology. You know, my my leadership, my manager, all supported it. It it, it you have to be a change agent. It was not easy along the way, uh, and it's you have to. As I've said in other other speaking engagements, you have to have the courage to be disliked because you're really changing. It's a big big shift from the back. But uh, with the right advocacy and I think and and the willingness of good business partners and tech partners, um, mm -hmm. it, you know we made it happen. But that's a, that's an amazing that's a critical piece of it is to have the advocacy. No, and and you touched on it briefly there as well. If, if I heard you correctly, it's the change was hard, but you delivered the results, and that makes the change worthwhile for all parties. It puts away the doubters and really allows everybody to celebrate their success versus just individuals saying, yes, we were able to do that. It's like, it became a team effort, it sounds like. Um, I have a question. You know, the elephant in the room with low code is always like, how are citizen developers going to totally mess up my business when they get their hands on all the IT assets? I really like both of your inputs on that. I'll start with you, Himanshu. What, what is your experience with companies dealing with citizen developers? And then we'll see if Susan agrees with you or not. Yeah, you know, I think uh, uh, depending upon the organization that you go to uh, and the culture underneath, this could be a touchy subject by itself. Uh, in the meanwhile, Joe, but but I think we'll 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 talk about uh, in general experiences from uh, how people deal with the entire fundamentals of giving the power to the citizen developers slash analysts, as Susan rightfully calls them as, um, and how the transition could happen, should happen from being the standard business analyst and IT analyst into some of these uh, newer roles around citizen analyst, uh, right? Um, business strategist and so on and so forth by itself. But two things do not change. Just like um, with your kids, uh, if only, if I have a teenager, so I can tell you that, and I go back and I'm saying, if only I had taught him this habit when he, when he was a toddler, I would be in a much better place. The same thing happens when adopting this entire low-code platform for your citizen developers. If only the initial pieces of your adoption of low-code and you would have taught the right mindset with the right discipline to the citizen developers and analysts, none of these conversations around whether they're going to break it, make it, so on and so forth would happen. So that's the first piece of the puzzle, getting it up front on that mindset, the thought process of thinking around it the right way. 
The second piece of the puzzle is drawing some very clear boundaries based on the work that you're trying to do, the problem that you're trying to solve. For example, Susan rightfully said data integrations, right? Rightfully left in the area of IT to say, guys, you know this best. We're not here to touch this piece of the puzzle. So drawing those right boundaries, again, based on the context and the culture of the organization by itself. I've seen sometimes business do also some of those minimal uh, API changes through XMLs and so on and so forth, but rightfully leaving it out in the right pieces is a second piece of the puzzle. So the collaboration between business and IT to come together, define the boundaries of what the citizen developers are allowed to do and not allowed to do is the second most important thing. The third most important thing in making the citizen development program uh, a lot more successful in this entire conversation is the tools that we can provide to help them make their journey of this adoption much better. And what I mean by that is, me, if you ask me as a citizen developer who is just starting to learn a new platform, a tech stack, a new ways of working, you can train me once, doesn't mean that I feel comfortable on day two or a day three or even a day 30 at that point of time. But I will not open up and come back and ask you a thousand questions on how to do it right, how to do my deployment right, how to go ahead and do this templatization right, how to set up the business rules right. I might ask, might not ask. And hence the ability for us to give them the right tools and the techniques, sometimes virtual analyst to which they can ask their questions from their chatbots and their texts without having to go and ask it to somebody there uh, in person. And then just celebrating the success of the citizen developers where they share their best practices, where they learn together, where they grow up together. I think those are a couple of the pieces that we have seen, if done right, they can become very, very important to success of the citizen developer program throughout the organization. Yeah, that's good. Susan, any comments? Um I do feel strongly about this. We have some citizen programmers, if you want to use that terminology, that are writing rules. So we have a couple applications we built that we actually deploy to our operations teams, and they are using more rule-based work. And that is where we have kind of a true citizen programmer. Uh, but we we do believe that the, the structure of a technology background, the same aptitude you need to code in Java, is really crucial to be successful. So sort of agreeing with Himanshu that the habitude you, you have. I have a chief engineer who does who is doing code reviews, trying to drive reuse, trying to do the things you need to do to really develop sustainable code that's optimized. So we do really, we look for people who have the right aptitude skills that you would for a traditional coding, but it doesn't mean they can't come from operations or some other field. We just look for analytical skills, logical skills. And we, we really are trying to, as I say, develop solid solutions that are reusable across either our organization or the enterprise. So we look for really strong programmers, people ideally who have coded in multiple languages. And all the folks on my team have a minimum of two applications or platforms they'll code on. So we do kind of learn from those and just get, um, get better. Because the more coding you do, obviously, across a multitude of platforms, usually the better you'll get. Great. Uh, so this has come up, and it came up in our top five, the training around low code. What did you do different to prepare your teams to use these new solutions from that initial training? But also, as we've gone through a, a period over the last two years where teams have found themselves more remote than ever before, 
um, not just having a remote partner, but their whole organization is sometimes thrown to the four winds. So how to get people trained so they're comfortable with using this, whether it's in the IT organization or as, a, as you're extending that bubble to others. So, so Susan, I'd love to hear to Manchu's point, you know, how do, how do you continue to train people on either the information and tools you're exposing, they can use low code to augment or improve upon, mm -hmm. or the actual codes, the, the actual new tools themselves? Are you using virtual ways or is it really, you know, in-class kind of things? We have a combination. Um, a member of my team built a very sophisticated program on Degree, which is a platform we have here. So we broke our roles down into platform managers, product managers, BAs, uh, delivery leads, and then our obviously our configurators. And so we have this program where we they can do a whole series of online training, and then they have the more formal training. You have to complete for Uncork, for instance, which is a more sophisticated, you have to complete a capstone program. There's also um, some online program with our vendors. And then we have your typical agile practices and just the good disciplines you have in technology. So we have this curriculum and that's why, as I mentioned earlier, we do have the opportunity for folks to um, progress into this from a different function as long as they've taken some of those skills um, in that training. Um, so training is important. We also have an innovative group in our Hangzhou team who built a Blue Prism or robotics training program. And um, the folks can stay in their regular jobs, perform this, but then it situates them or positions them very well to come in and to do another role. Um, so I fully agree, training is crucial, um, a combination of sort of informal training and then some of the classic training modules. So we, it was what they go through. And I'm sure, how do you guys train? Do you have modules that you work with um, your, your customers and your partners to develop? And how do you proliferate that? Sure, sure. So uh, the way we have streamlined our training fundamentals in low code is uh, based on uh, a simple maturity curve of think, adopt, and live. Um, think is all about that mindset that, that I've been talking more and more about, right? Uh, the right fundamentals of doing the low code, the right uh, trainings, uh, and then going into the right adoption and then being able to live low code day in and day out in everything that you do. So that's the philosophy that we follow. Um, we work with our partners uh, to take some of their courses uh, that they typically offer uh, right, by itself and then surround some of those courses with additional best practices, experiences, learnings that we have learned across implementing it across a variety of products and platforms as well as just experientially. The third thing that we do in that as part of that training is also go ahead and contextualize for a customer, right? Uh, using some of our platforms like uh, Wingspan. Um, and the reason we do that is because every product out of the box would come up with its own base of working, uh, which might not be 100% the ways of working for a client. And if the client citizen analysts or developers are made to go through only that, they would always have questions on how do I do this the right way, right? A simple example could be, um, a product uses XYZ to do the alerting and the logging and the monitoring of the application, but the client might use, let's say, Splunk to do that. Now, 
infusing these two together, creating a very custom course out of it to say, using the product that you've chosen in your landscape, but using Splunk to do the monitoring around it, here is the right way to configure it. And that contextualization uh, for such a small minor thing, but makes a lot, a large difference to the way since the developers thinks, is the third piece that we do uh, on contextualizing some of these trainings and fundamentals. And then as a part of that contextualization, we also bring in some of the toolings uh, aspect of it, right? Uh, for example, uh, can I give you a virtual architect? Can I give you a chatbot for you to open up your questions? Can I have uh, somebody do the code review, uh, right? And the best practice review automatically as soon as you try to check in the code uh, without you having to even go uh, much later in the SDLC cycles. How do you write the right uh, test cases and so on and so forth for even unit testing, not just system testing. But some of those fundamental basics, uh, being able to automate them and optimize them again, based on the context of the client and the product and the Lego building blocks that you have chosen. I think that's the last piece of training uh, puzzle that we bring to the table. No, that, that's great. I'm curious, and this has come up, you know, a little bit in both these conversations, governance around low code, because it really does change the way you've typically developed governance models for other types of software development life cycles. Susan, your practical experience, what changed in how you had to govern as low code became more and more popular amongst your, your team to, to use to develop, develop these solutions quickly for, for its customers? I tend to be a bit risk reverse, risk averse when it comes to you know developing solutions, especially as I say, these are very mission critical used by um, criti for critical functions. So we do use a classic sort of SDLC methodology for our development where we align with the policy. But it's it's obviously faster still, um, but it has the same tenants, the same change, change management tenants. So we have a playbook that we use for all of our um, implementation. We have release control board meetings weekly where we um, get ready to deploy it. Um, we communicate it, we do checkouts. So it's a very classic methodology for developing it. It's just that the risk is lower typically because it's contained um, and, and we've had good success with our implementations from it. Both the sustainability, the break fix has not been enormous. We have our share of it, but it's really been quite good. Um, so I think that is a testament to the change management practice we put in place. Uh, as I say, there's always learnings from different things, but the practices, the playbook itself is very detailed and it goes all the way from all the work that we're doing as well as what our business partners are doing. So when you deploy in code, you know, the procedures that need to change, the training that needs to be implemented, they're just building the awareness. Um, so our playbook goes all the way from the point of intake through the point of deployment. And then we have a phase, which is the optimizing it, making sure folks are using the tools, making sure that we're getting the benefits that we expected. So it's a pretty comprehensive playbook, um, including the development, the design, the um, testing, as well as the deployment. Great, no, thank you for that. And I'd like to remind people, please use the chat to ask questions. We'll be getting those in about, about five or 10 minutes. Uh, before I do, you know, one thing that's come up in several conversations has been using low code. What's the difference in using low code for backend core system development versus front-end business-facing development? Do you see differences there on how low code's used and, and the type of, or the expectations folks have around um, what kind of success that leads to and, and how sustainable that is? Amanshu, thoughts on that? 
Yeah, no, uh, Joel, you're right. Uh, we've seen a lot of places where uh, people have started off um, low code in the back office uh, fundamentals and solving problems in the back office. Uh, it could be more around, um, just like what Susan was mentioning earlier, the end user computes or the SharePoint workflows, right? Uh, and, and it's and it's more about just feeling comfortable with with the power that you have in your hand, uh, and then moving on to the customer facing fundamentals by itself. Um, now, there's no right or wrong answer. Don't get me wrong. I've seen also clients do directly in the front uh, office. I think it's more to do with where does the problem lie and what problem are you solving? Because I've seen clients. Um, very large institutions take a request in the front office, create a service ticket, throw it back to the mid office for them to adjudicate, who throws it back to the back office for the work to actually get done. And I've seen that. The irony of that is all three have service management tools, ticketing tools, workflow automations that they have done in their individual silo, right? And some of them have used low code to automate their piece of the puzzle. Again, goes back to what problem are you solving? And are you really looking at it from a one office perspective where I could have leverage a common underlying set of technologies, principles, fundamentals to solve the right problem, which is what? A customer put in a service request in the front end and it can get solved much more faster because I've been able to go ahead and get the right collaboration and get the work done automatically using a set of low code, no code platforms and hence the, the right fundamentals to solve. So while there is no right or wrong way to start, I think people feel comfortable in starting in back offices because they are not going directly to the end consumer. They evolve uh, to front offices, uh, but end of the day, it boils down to the problem you're solving. And if you can solve it across all the three, Nothing like it. The power is there with the local platforms to make it happen. I think it's just a question of um, the right partners that you bring to advise you on this journey, uh, as well as the platforms that you choose to solve these problems with. Great. Susan, I'm curious, was there one specific challenge with adopting low code that you hadn't expected, or maybe you had expected it just might have taken more time than you expected to actually get over it. Is there one specific challenge that comes to mind that you could share your own experiences upon? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of what's unique to low code. I mean, requirements gathering and data integration are always, you know, any project you have. Um, the, the data integration got easier with these tools we're using because of the API and they're just a little bit more adaptable. Um, but, you know, we Data readiness is really critical um, because we can be much more efficient. These tools are faster, but if the data is not ready, then you can, you know, run rates will extend. So I would say that data readiness is really important. And we've pivoted a few of our projects to try to make sure that the data is ready. And then we can, because then we can really speed through it. Um, one comment I'd make about why this is so unique to us and it sort of builds on what Himanshu said is, we are doing very targeted solutions. We are doing front to back, like our client onboarding is from point of sale to establishment and kicking off trading. Um, so we are trying to knit together, um, but the tools itself, what they afford you the opportunity to do is to do a targeted solution with incremental value versus a classic IT solution, which tends to be broader and sometimes even in an agile world, you have releases, you know, maybe every three few months or whatnot. So, we really are using these tools to solve problems that you can get a quick win 
you know, in a very, in a very you know, maybe small functional area that evolved immediately adds value and reduces risk or might accelerate revenue. So I, I think that that's how folks should look at low code as is looking at it as a way to rapidly improve things. And maybe it's, you're not really trying to design multi-year solutions. You're trying to show where the quick wins. That's how we've used it. That's more of the positive side of it as in terms of what we didn't anticipate, I think is just, again, the data readiness um, has caused us some, you know, some challenges and we continue to work through that. Um, data readiness, this has been a, a very common topic that's come up over and over again when I talk to folks about low code is the majority of companies have realized to be successful with low code, they got to get their data right. They, they, they discover a lot of things that they probably knew wasn't new they could put off into the future and then suddenly exposing them to developers across the organization really made them realize we've got to fix this because if the data is bad they build something off the wrong data or it's not been secure that's a big challenge Amanshu, experiences working with companies and, and I'm, I'm sort of tying that gordian knot of data as really a critical piece of your loco journey Thoughts there, guidance that you'd like to share? No, absolutely, um, Joel. See, data becomes the core of the right application that you want to build. Again, uh, if you're just replicating what you had in your legacy and trying to just convert it into a tech transformation, uh, maybe so much, but if you're trying to solve the right problems, data becomes such an integral part of this entire conversation. Right from the data access, the security pieces of the puzzle, in what to provide for the citizen analyst to play with and how, and how to put it back into the consumer facing applications to the readiness of the data by itself. Uh, that is so much more important. And that's why I was earlier talking about the right collaboration between business and IT, because a lot of systems of records are owned by IT teams out there. Some of them might not be API-fied yet, to give you the right data in the right place uh, in the right manner and hence when you start to go and solve and find the right problems uh, in this close collaboration and try to co-create and co-innovate i think then you start to realize what are the right data elements where do they reside do you even have a golden copy of them or not right what is the work that needs to get done on those system of records uh, to bring it to the right level to get the right data readiness to API some of those data out there and then provide it to the citizen development programs and the local local applications to make the right use of it because if done the right way and once done the right way business really really knows right there how to monetize all of that data in the right places it's just that that data has not been given to them in the right ways uh, front. And this collaboration and cooperation with the low-code platforms and being able to visualize some of this data, being able to go ahead and pull it off with some APIs makes a lot of difference. Yeah, thanks for that. You brought up a couple of points there and they kind of tie it back to something Susan said earlier. And this is actually building off a question that's come in. Once the business is empowered with low-code, have you had any experience or any challenge with business trying to take it away and just run with it without the support of their IT partners? We're in the business. So I guess our IT partners could think we're 
operating, but we operate and collaborate with our IT partners and we have a very clear division of labor. So we, we do the configuration, we do the design, we do the, um, you know, the, the, the business and analytics, we product manage, we drive scope with our business partners. The, IT, the actual testing is done by our tech teams and data integration is done by tech. So it's a very well-defined and uh, I don't think we actually, even when we choose low code versus classic IT, we engage them in the discussion. So I don't, I don't think that's a, a, a concern. Uh, what I, I think we still the resistance is, is it as powerful as you think, you know, there's that kind of natural sort of resistance, but I don't, I don't believe there's any perception that we're kind of running away with it. And as I said, maybe because I'm a technologist at heart, we have pretty strict disciplines. So we're not deploying without kind of real classic sort of um, state um, toll, toll gates and things of that nature. And I mentioned, what are your thoughts on that? Have you had experiences with some of your customers where you're a valued partner working predominantly with the technology team and suddenly the business wants to kind of run away with it and your technology partners are like, help me stop the shadow IT or help me proliferate this because it's creating so much value for the business uh, through this. What, what are some of your experiences along those lines? Yeah, it really boils down to culture and communication. Uh, right. Uh, if if IT feels because they've not been communicated well with, not collaborated well with, that there's something going on that side of the business, uh, right? And they're doing something which I don't understand, which I don't know what it is all about. And they're trying to put something into production and it'll blow all up and, and I'll have to go and fix it and so on and so forth. Those things happen. But if done the right way, and I'm going to give you a quick story of uh, we were part of... Uh, a citizen adoption program uh, where every fortnight we used to get together uh, just like for a happy hour with all of all of our citizen developers business was there ops team was there it teams were there all coming together just to share learnings just to talk more about it and uh, one time we chose a place which was more like uh, byob bring your own bottle right uh, to those fundamentals and so on and so forth and over those discussions a new term was born, uh, which surrounded business, IT, and ops coming together into the citizen development programs. And it was DYOA, just like BYOB. And it was do your own app, right? And then we elongated it further once we came back after a couple of hours back into offices to continue with that chit chat of it's not just do your own app for citizen developers, it's also own your app do own your own app. Do not think as business developers going on the other side that I can play around with low code, no code, put something into production and it becomes IT's problem moving forward. And I might not have designed it for the right privacy, the right security, the, the right uh, RBAC principles and so on and so forth. That's not what it is. If you wanna put an app into production, in a collaboration with business and IT, you need to own that app as well. Because putting an app one time is not done with low code. As Susan rightfully said, the incremental value that you can deliver, right? The real business value that you can deliver. And for that, you need to start owning that app and that ownership needs to come together, not, not just with one single person by itself. So for, for, for this conversation, do your app, but own your app as well. Well, that's interesting. And that kind of brings up one of the questions that you just got from Raj, and this kind of builds on that, is do you see the challenges in propagating a low-code mindset within organizations? 
Uh, and does it change the management principles at play there? And I think a bit of that is, is answering that, but uh, any further comments on, on how uh, a technology or a business leader can help propagate a low-code mindset in the organization? Start with you, Himanshu, then I'll let Susan comment. Sure. No, I think, uh, uh, as I said, uh, low-code is a slightly different piece of fundamental technology conversations just because of the power and the acceleration that it can provide to you, right? Um, and hence, that mindset upfront, when you're talking about the right culture and the business and IT to come together from a management principle is upfront. Business and IT need to sit down, have the right chat, when adopting the local principles, right from what kind of platforms to what kind of governance to what kind of communication and collaboration to the right boundaries to the help needed for the citizen development programs to learn the right fundamentals on the privacy, the security, the data, right, the access controls, and so on and so forth. And then everybody trying to figure out why am I doing this local program again? Because if you can't find the right problem to solve and you want to use it for just for tech transformation, that will not cut it as well. So the collaboration and business IT and ops teams to sit together to design the management principles, that's point number one. The second is, how does the citizen development program eventually grow itself? Because you can start off with citizen developers, citizen analysts, whatever naming convention your organization wants to call them as. But as the lines start to <clears throat> blur a little bit, right? Um, how does that program start to evolve? What do their goal sheets start to evolve as, right? Purely from how do uh, how do they get measured by their managers and so on and so forth? Does the collaboration and uh, getting it to be a successful launch get uh, compensated the right way from an incentivization perspective? So those are some fundamentals of uh, the organization and the management principles, both from right from goal settings to measurements, the incentivization that also needs to be looked at when you're doing a local adoption. That, that's really interesting. Um, building on that, one of the questions that, that came up that kind of that, that echoes that from uh, from our audience was uh, there was a great point that was made on incremental versus traditional rollout changes, and they were wondering if there's any other consideration when choosing a low code solution versus a low code platform. I know we don't want to get into a product discussion here, but when you think about how you have low-code platforms for your business. Um, Susan, you brought up Blue Prism, RPA, but also using some of that similar type of look and feel versus a, an Uncork, which was also brought up, or, or an OutSystems, which is a, a more bespoke solution. Do you use these for different problems? Are there different things that you would use to, as, 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 as points of differentiation or, or preference when it comes to low-code? So primarily we are referring to these, these are platforms. So they're platforms we're using to develop solutions. Um, we, we haven't, I mean, Duco, which is a recon platform is more of a product solution because it is very targeted, but most of what we're using like the Blue Prism and the other tools, they're being brought in so we can deliver faster solutions um, to our businesses, but we are developing reusable frameworks. So essentially we're, we wanted a couple of things we wanted to avoid, a proliferation of, you know, of disparate solutions that were hard to maintain and track. Like we didn't want to replicate the mistakes of the past, which was we had about 700 macros. And, and so when we implemented our low code solutions, we did it in a very structured way. 
Um, and so, as I say, we do develop products or solutions on these platforms, but we're not looking for a lot of product solutions just yet. Um, there are some vendors that have it, um, but we're mostly we wanted to do some of this because we have a lot of solutions that are unique to our space. Um, and there weren't a lot of necessarily productized solutions that were going to be a value to us, at least at the initial part of our journey here. A new question that just came in around elaborating on collaboration. Do you have some concrete examples of where you have seen that collaboration, Susan, between your team and your tech partners? Like, like a very, maybe a very specific example where it just really allowed the acceleration of delivering that speed to value you mentioned earlier. A couple of different areas. So we're doing a lot of work around digitization, of course. So the standing settlement um, work that we do, it's a very tight collaboration between the tech team because there's a lot of data required, you know, alert direct all of our the data sources coming in for standing settlement instructions, the automated ones and the not so automated ones. We had a team that's responsible for all the static data setup. There's a lot of risk in standing settlement instructions. You have to get it right. And then we also had a lot of collaboration with our risk team because of the you know, sensitivity around this work. So that was a great example of a very collaborative, very tight knit group of individuals who are solving these problems, one to prioritize what was most important. Um, so that, that's a great example of it. And, and I think it also speaks to the co-invent because it was very much this group was doing it together. Um, we re wanted to not be waiting for requirements to start developing. We wanted to really iterate on it and, and be more, um, I think, responsive to the needs. Um, so that's a good example. Another one is we're working now with our front office. They have a lot of tools that are not what we call institutional tools, and they, they, they don't have a lot of funding. So we're looking and we're bringing our bringing in some tools to help them solve those problems in what we think will be a, a more rapid way, more cost-effective way. So that's the collaboration with sort of our front office partners. There's a few other examples, but I think the key is that we did, we work with them in a very iterative way, which is what we hope to achieve. We're not waiting for a BRD and we're trying to anticipate their needs and trying to solve them with them collaboratively. Um, and that's, that's hopefully the key that the value we're trying to bring to the table. Thank you. I mentioned another question that's coming. I'm really curious to your thoughts here. Um, you know, traditional software DevOps developers love writing code. They see it as an art. They see it as something that's very important to get right because it's going to last for a long time. And so there's a lot of worry that, you know, novice users or the adoption of low code creates sort of a counterculture to this. So they're, they're there tends to be more some friction that evolves between, hey, let's go for low code versus no. The proper way to code is to actually think through these and use the traditional coding. How do you come in or how did your team come in and advise companies to, to address those mindsets, those cultural changes that are needed to get these teams to work together? Sure, Joel. Look, uh, we, we hear very similar conversations from our uh, uh, IT stakeholders a lot more, uh, right? Uh, when they're just starting to absorb what low code is really about. Is it really low code, uh, right? Uh, is it really no code? Is there a pro code and so on and so forth? Um, and when we advise them, we ask them three fundamental questions that over the last probably 10 odd years in the past, 
have they realized that the needs for IT itself has changed? And when we say that, when you go back and ask business, what kind of IT do you need? And they'll come back with, I need a simple, intuitive, much more simpler version of IT. When you go to the ops team and say, what kind of IT do you think you should be having? And they would come back and say something which is simple, but more of a self-servicing need because that's the IT need to solve my own problems. When you go back to IT and say, by the way, you are IT. What do you think is the IT you need? And they'll come back and say, oh, I have all the tools. I have all the technologies. Only if I had a faster IT, right, in my side. So by looking at all these dimensions of just the changes of IT uh, that needs to be having for different kinds of stakeholders, we truly believe that what organizations need today is fluid IT or fluidity, such that you can take care of all the frictions that traditionally happen in development of uh, programs and projects and applications, irrespective of whether you coded them or not, whether you use a no-code, no-code, a model-driven or a pro-code conversation or not. But the first thing that needs to come is, do you have a fluid IT which can take any shape based on the stakeholder at hand and give them the right facade that they need to be able to solve their problems? That's the first piece of the puzzle, why it is different and the way we advise it. The second piece uh, of this entire conversation then also boils down to making the IT teams comfortable with what low-code, no-code entails in building a solution. And it goes also back to the platform versus the solution mindset approach. That there are so many Lego building blocks of really creating a mission-critical complex app versus if you're looking at just converting an EUC, right, and, and use a compute or a macro or a SharePoint workflow into a low-code solution uh, or app by itself. And once they have played around with that low-code, once they have gotten used to building some of these applications themselves, the transition becomes much, much more faster. Now, at that point of time, it goes back to governance to say, do you really want to take what the low-code applications provide you out of the box and you want to write a code wrapper still on top of it just because you wanted to, to extend it? Or are you happy with the business value it is delivering back to you? And if you really wanted to write the code, go ahead. There's still system of record out there. There is still data that needs to be unlocked. There are still the APIs that need to be figured out. There's still the integrations in the back end that needs to be figured out. And you could play with a lot of code in those areas even now. That's not, uh, not said. But use it in the right places rather than in the core of the business logic, right? And the UI and the UX and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's the second piece. Now, we've also seen one third category, which is the front 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 end of the customer facing applications, that UX, the way the low-code platforms have realized some of that UX versus what you can achieve by 100% pro coding, sometimes there is a difference. And we've seen some of our uh, customers use low-code, no-coding more in a headless architecture and keeping that UX a very heavily coded front end experience. Uh, for some of those fundamentals, not for all. 50% of the uh, customers have moved to a low-code, no-code driven UI UX. 50% have still believe that UI UX should be done the right way with the, some of the other fundamentals. That's a good point. It's also performance. Um, 
it, it performances a little bit harder to optimize when you're dealing with a full with a WebEx. So I, I agree with you, Hamancha, where we're seeing some of that too. It it does work certainly, but when you get to the more complex ones and sometimes low code's not as well suited. So, yeah. Those are those are great points. Um while this this time is just flying, I, I do want to say that we've worked through a lot of the questions, but we haven't got to everybody's question. Uh we'll do our best to respond to those that have come in offline. But if we didn't get to your question, please feel free to email us at ask at hfsresearch.com and, and I can coordinate some responses to, to anybody on the call here who has follow-up questions as well. I'm going to finish with one last question for you, Susan, and I, it might be a softball, it might be a hardball. Who owns the budget for low code at State Street? So last year, well, in 22 this year, we had about 40 to 50% of our budget was on low code. And then the rest the remainder was on classic IT solutions. And when we say classic IT solutions, the data to support our low code development was in the IT side of the house. So what we keep in our side is all the requirements, gathering design, architecture, business architecture, re-engineering and configuration. So it was about a 40, 50% split. Uh, and it is in the business budget, but we're also doing a lot of self-funding. So we, we're it's in the business side of the costs are in the business side, but we're also delivering the value on the business side. Um, so it sort of incents us to make sure that we're making good choices in what we invest in and what we and making sure we deliver on our promises. And, and you said one word in there. You've said it several times throughout our conversation. You're creating value. And when you're creating value, that really does break down a lot of barriers to getting budget to, to invest in things. So that that's that's amazing. This has been great. I've really appreciated your time. I've learned a lot, and I hope that our audience has learned a lot as well. Uh, thank you, Humanshu, for taking the time. Thank you so much, Susan, for adding so much to this conversation. I really do appreciate it. Um, and with that, I, I'm going to hand it back over to Mark to, to close us out. Thanks so much, Joel, Susan, and Humanshu. Um, we also want to thank everyone for the great questions and for joining us here today. A recording of today's webinar will be available on our website soon, along with the deck. Plus, in the meantime, you can download the HFS point of view titled Low Code Addresses the Fast-Paced Go-to-Market Needs of Accelerating Digital at hfsresearch.com. Once again, thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon.